have not caught these three sermons here that have been put together, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to them. I, um, I, I'd love to be able to teach it all together, but I just got lost in the depth of this text, and, and yet they are really a package uh, to be understood and, and taught through. So we encourage you to go back and read those. Starting in verse 5 has been our text through 11 here for the last past few weeks. It says this, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not recall, regard equality to be, to be uh, with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of on a cross. Here's our verses this morning. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. He bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven, and those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, you may be seated. Father in heaven, we look at these verses and are absolutely amazed. You inspired the apostle to write about humility and you gave him one of the deepest, most glorious doctrines to present humility in. And we have, over the last few weeks, stood in awe of Jesus. That the God-man, the fully full deity of God residing within him in bodily form, takes on humanity and humbles himself and comes to earth, Lord. The only solution for man's sin. Lord, as he humbled himself, you exalted him. Father, as we look at the exaltation of your son today, may it spur us to excitement for who he is. For passion for a savior that you have exalted and given the name above all names. You have given him authority over all things. And may we see him and understand him in that way. May we present him to those we love and those we come in contact with that glorious truth. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there's something going on in our world called March Madness. It is not a mad cow disease that hits this time of year. Um... Some people kind of, what is all this? And March Madness, of course, is the NCAA basketball championship. 64 teams get into a bracket, and they play to the death. I mean, they play to the one who wins. Um, and if you like college sports, many of us watch those things. It is a fascinating thing, though, when you think about it, though. There are 64 teams that go into this great bracket, and there's only one at the end. Everybody else, what? Loses. <laughs> 
Yesterday, there was a man who filled out a bracket. I don't know if you followed ESPN. They have a bracket challenge. And, and 11 million people signed up for this bracket challenge. You can win a million dollars if you get all 64, 32 games, all these games that go together, only 64 teams that play. It's never been done, never will be done, because there's no way you can pick all the upsets. But one guy, 10,999,999 lost, but one guy got through the two rounds with a perfect score. They're interviewing him. I mean, they, they, they got him on ESPN. They're going, how did you know? And he's picking upsets that nobody would have thought. And then he came down to Ohio State and Arizona last night. And his team lost. He's done. It's fascinating to me. We all lose. In the end, and that's the thing about sports and so many other things, at the end, there's one person and everybody else loses. That is not really the case in this text, but in, in, in a sense, I want you to think about this. Every kingdom, every person at the end, at the very end of all of time, all will bow the knee. One will remain standing. That's what this text is going to teach us today. Nobody will say, well, hey, I'm not going to bend the knee. We will see today, all will bow. Every king, every kingdom, every great and small person will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been saying this through this series on these few verses here, that the way up is the way down. And here is the attitude that Paul is presenting so we can learn to be more humble. And, and he is given this, this attitude showing us through the Lord Jesus Christ that the way up is first the way down. And that's what he did. Verse 6 said that he's God. He's God in every way. But, but he didn't take that and say, I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going I'm to keep this. And it's so important that he didn't do that, that he veiled him, his deity in his humanity so he could die for us. And that's what verse 7 is about. And became this willing bondservant, this willing slave for the purpose to die for men. And not just any death, but a death on a cross. And we talked about this yesterday, I mean last week, of this appearance that he experienced humanity for us in every aspect. And that though 3,000 people are recorded that they died on a cross before Jesus died on a cross, his death was so much greater because no one who died on a cross before him died for somebody else's sins. They just died. Right or wrong, I don't know of every decision that was made, if they were all thieves or what it was. Doubtlessly, that's probably not true. But their, their death, as sad as it was, could not redeem themselves, let alone one other person. But Christ's death redeemed us. The death on the cross. And so that was the low point. We'll see this on Friday night, on Good Friday night. We'll look at that lowest point where Christ was. The Father is pulling back. He is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sins of humanity, of all you and I, have been pressed on him. He is being judged for those sins. The weight of the law, the weight of God's wrath is all on him. He's at the bottom. 
And he cries out, you've forsaken me, Father. He feels the weight of that. And that's, that's where we left off last week, in a sense. And then you turn to verse nine. And here he comes. The Lord's exalting the king of kings. The Lord of lords. And these verses are glorious. And they remind us of where we're headed and what we're going to see and, and, and what we're going to be involved in. And, and it reminds you of this, before I get into this text, it's worth the fight. Stay in it. Don't walk away. Don't give up. Jesus wins. And if you're in Christ, you win with him. It's glorious. And I hope you're greatly encouraged this morning. I'm going to give you three thoughts this morning out of these texts here. First, the name above every name that, that exalts Jesus Christ. The name above every name that exalts Jesus Christ. He is now on his way up. God is exalting him. And he says some pretty amazing things here. Verse 9 for this reason, that all that we just talked about there in 5, 6, 7, and 8, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. Think of some of the names God has given the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some great names out there. I just got a few of them. I could spend the whole sermon just on names. But he called him Messiah, the anointed one. We, we call it Christ. In your Bible, every time you read the word Christ, it is really the word Messiah. And he's given this term, Messiah, the anointed one, meaning the promised deliverer of his nation, Israel, and the Gentile nations to come. It is a phenomenal name. He's Messiah. In fact, when you get around Messianic Jews, they don't really use the word Christ like we use it. They use the word what? Messiah when they speak of him. Because he is the Messiah. In fact, when a Jew comes to know the Lord, they go, we miss the Messiah. That was him. We rejected what God gave. And they bend the knee. And they're saved at that point when they recognize. Because they know. They know an understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to do. They thought king, going to rule the world, take over all these problems that we have in the world. They still have a lot of problems right now. But they miss this very, very important section called, we need a savior. You can't have a king without a savior. You can't be in the kingdom unless you wear the right clothes. So he has to dress us in his righteousness, and that's the problem with much of the world, is they want, all, they want God to do something. They want some reigner, one who will reign and rule, but they miss, we have to have a savior. And when they come to that, they know that he is the sent one, that he is the promised deliverer, not deliverer from Iraq, Iran, from our problems, the deliverer from our sin. That's man's biggest problem. Now, think of another name. He's called the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite title of himself. He uses this of himself more than any other title when he speaks throughout the gospel account. And this title speaks of his role as mediator who represents us. Tim, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, he said this in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is one God, one mediator, equal. 
He's using God and mediator as the same person, also between God and men, that, that man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time, the Son of Man. I love that term. I love it. Whenever I see Jesus use that term himself, I go, wow, he's representing me. He's standing in the gap. I'm representing all those who believe. I'm going to die for them, and I'm going to represent you to the Father. It's a great term. But that's not the term that he's exalted. That's not the name above names. There's other names, Son of God. We've talked about this. It declares his deity, his divinity. He's the Son of God. He's equal with the Father. Satan addresses him this way. Do you know that? Satan addressed him this way in Matthew 4, 3, and 6. He calls him the Son of God. People get ticked off when you call him the Son of God. Satan calls him the Son of God. He knows who he is. He knows he's fully equal with the Father. In fact, we have a verse in 1 John 4, 15. You probably should write this one down. It says this. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's a really, really important title. The Bible says that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. The, the Greek word is ameno, meaning he remains, lives, dwells in. We are, we are people who confess that Jesus is son of, the, son of God, equal to the right of the throne and all that God is. But that's not the title he gives him here. Jesus, so he's called Messiah, he's called Son of Man, he's called Son of God, many other things. He's prophet, priest, and king. He's called the Alpha and Omega, the door, the beloved, the great shepherd of our soul, in so many names throughout the scriptures. But that's not the name he's given in our text. Here in our text, Jesus is given a name above all names, and that name is what? Lord. It's Lord. It's a little confusing when you read it, but in the original language, it really comes out brightly. It comes out brightly. Here, the name is the name that every knee will bow to. The Bible says that the name of Jesus here is identifying the man Christ Jesus, identifying that person. So some people say when they read this, they say, oh, the name is Jesus. No, he's identifying the person that has the title in verse 11. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's Jesus who is identified as Lord. So why the name Lord? Why the name Lord given here is a name above every name? Well, it's because God so pleased, was so pleased and so satisfied with his payment, with his incarnation that he accepted humanity to him. He came to earth, was born of a babe. He's so pleased with his finished work on the cross that he grants him an exalted title. He gives him the highest title that can ever be given. He gives him the term Lord. Look at Hebrews chapter one with me. We looked at this the last few weeks, but I want to go just a little farther with this. Hebrews chapter one. Keep your finger there and we'll flip back and forth. Verse one says that God spoke in a lot of ways. But now it's spoken in his son, verse 2, whom he's pointed heir of all things. That's the son of God. He, he's equal. He has, he has the reign and rule of all things. And he's also creator, into verse 2, through whom he also made the world. So he's creator. You can't call him 
just a man when he's called creator. He made the world. I can't even make a boat. Um, you know, he made the world. Verse three, he's the radiance of, of his glory. You want to see the Shekinah? You read some of the Old Testament, you go, well, I wish I could see the Shekinah glory of God. That was such a scene at the end of Exodus that it fills the temple. Oh, I wish I could see that. Look at Jesus, you see it. He is the Shekinah glory. He's exact representation of his nature. He's exact reflection. Some people have said this, if God looks in the mirror, Jesus is the reflection. If Jesus looks in the mirror, God is reflection. They share that nature together. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So he's sustainer, not only creator, but sustainer. And when he made purification of sin, so he's savior now, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high, so he has a full authority. All's been given to him. Now look at verse four. And having become much better than any angels, right? Because people say, oh, Jesus was just an angel. This is one of the false doctrines, right? He says he's just an angel. <laughs> no, no, no. The Bible says he's much better than any angels. And look at this last part. And he has inherited a more excellent name than they. There's no angels called Lord. There's no angels given that name. This name is given to emphasize the rank over all things, over all beings. It is the name above every name. This name is incomparable to any names that you could put up. It's a little bit hard to get your mind around it because he has so many glorious names. But God chose Lord for many, many reasons. And let me give you some of those this morning. He's given the name, an incomparable name, Lord, because the Lord is the best title that identifies him as God. It's the best title that identifies him as God. Both the Greek and Hebrew use these words. And let me just give you a little bit of background here. The word kurios is the word in the Greek. It means we would translate it ruler, master, owner, as we get the word from that. It was used in Jesus' day, in fact, past Jesus' day and before Jesus' day. Um, rulers like Caesar, who, who were recognized as deity in time, they were given the term Lord, because they were gods. In fact, you know that Christians later were killed and died because they would not say Jesus is Lord. You remember this in church history, right? Christians would be arrested, they would be brought, and if they would not confess that Jesus was Lord, they would slay them. Caesar is Lord, excuse me. If they didn't confess that Caesar is Lord. They knew that Jesus was Lord, right? And, and they wouldn't say it. They would say, no, Jesus is Lord, and many of them died for that. It is the ruler. It is the owner of their souls. It is the ruler and owner of your soul and all that exists. Another name that we get is kind of out of the Hebrew end of it. Um, the Hebrew word for Lord is Adonai. And it's an interesting word. There was, it was extreme importance to the Hebrews in their day, the Jewish people, that they didn't use the word Jehovah. They, they, they respected the holiness of God so much that they wouldn't say the word Jehovah. They would not say that publicly. So they dropped a bunch of vowels out of that and they came up with the word, Hebrew word, Adonai, that we translate Lord. 
do you catch the connection? Why this, this name is so above every name? God gives him the name Jehovah. Ruler, owner, sustainer, creator. All of that is encompassed in that name, both in both the Greek and the Hebrew. We see this over and over. So when Christians, you and I, both in Christ's time and in the apostles' time and even today, when we confess that the Jesus of Nazareth is Lord, they and we are saying that Jesus is God of Israel, he's Jehovah, and he's the only true king, he's the only true God, he's the only true Lord, there are none other. That's how powerful this name is. Now, think about this term. We see it this way, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, I believe, Paul uses it. He starts to talk about Christ, and he kind of loses himself in praise a little bit, and he breaks out and says he's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. King of Kings, meaning all the kings, all the rulers of all time, from, from the beginning of time till the end of time, he's king over those kings. And then there's a lot of lords in the small L Lord. They have a lot of ownership over things. They rule over people. They do things. But Jesus is the Lord of all those lords. He owns the lords. He rules the lords. Now, both Revelation 17, 14 and Revelation 19, 16 give a picture of him coming back. And guess what's written on his thigh? King of Kings. Lord of Lords. And when you see him coming back, and he's got that written on him, and he's coming with a sword this time, oh my, what a day that is going to be. He is coming to set the record straight. Revelations 19, 16 says this, and on his robe and on his right thigh, on his thigh, he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He wrote it. I'm coming back. There will be no lords and there will be no kings that will not bow before me. I will judge them all in my perfection. And the writers pick up on this terminology. Think about just shortly after the resurrection, some events that take place. Mary Magdalene sees the Lord in the garden. The first thing she goes back and says to the disciples is, quote this, uh, John 20, verse 18, I have seen Jesus. I have seen the Lord. Now she called him Jesus all the way through. She called him, she saw him as Christ, as the Messiah. And after that resurrection, she calls him Lord. Thomas, just a few verses later in chapter 20, verse 28 of John, he missed the first appearance in the upper room. He shows up for the second one. And Jesus, remember him, says, well, Thomas, do you want to stick your finger in my hand? Would you like to thrust your hand into my side? Stop un being unbelieving, he tells him literally. And Thomas falls before him and he calls him my Lord and my God. In fact, that's a term we uh, that little chi in between that's not used all the times this way, but it's, it's called an chi of equity. I mean, it's, it's equal. The name Lord and God are the same. That's what comes out of him. He didn't say, oh, Jesus, Messiah, my friend. He says, my Lord and my God. 
The apostles pick up on this use throughout the New Testament. You see it over and over that he is Lord. And I think it begs the question this morning, is he your Jehovah? See, there's religions in the world, if we say these things and we say them publicly, they would strike us. There's no way you can call Jesus Jehovah in their mind. ISIS is working their way, trying to find Christians who identify them with Jesus, and they kill them immediately. We in this country are pressured more and more in public arenas not to pray in the name of Jesus. Why is that? Why is it there's such a fear of the Lord Jesus Christ or a hatred towards him, it seems to be? Is it because God has identified him despite man, despite man's desire to rule and reign himself and said he is Lord? It's a term you and I have to come to grips with. Is he your Lord? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus, your Lord and Savior? He's coming. He's coming. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. And you're either going to bow and confess in great joy or you will bow and confess in submission and fall before your judge. I would plead you this morning that you would ask and answer this question. Is he your Jehovah? Is he your Adonai? Is he your Lord? There's so many implications to Jesus as Lord. It means he's sovereign over all things. He's ruler, reigner. We read in Hebrews 1.3 that he upholds all things by his name. So that means that affects how we look at creation. Do we give that to the scientists of the world that deny there's a God? Or do we say he is Lord? He's, he is creator, sustainer of all things. He spoke things in. If you notice things about Jesus, he doesn't do things halfway. When he said on the cross, it's finished, but then you must go out and do a whole list. He didn't do that, did he? Heaven forbid. So Lord means he finishes things. He's accomplishes things and if he's called creator that means he accomplished creation and he accomplishes salvation and he accomplishes return and rule and reign on high oh he is lord if we call him lord that means he is coming again i want to show you a fascinating little passage first thessalonians chapter four go there with me real quickly And I want you to watch the language that Paul purposely uses, I believe, by the inspiration of the scripture, how he turns from the term Jesus to the term Lord here. Now, look at verse 13. He's encouraging Christians. They've lost many. People have died for their faith. They have, they have died from natural causes, it seems. They've died, and, and so Paul wants to encourage them, and he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest of those who do not have hope. So he's gonna connect hope with Jesus and lack of hope with no Lord. Now watch how he does this, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus, that's the God-man, identifying his humanity, his person, 
died and rose again, if you believe that, even so God will bring with him, that's Jesus, those who have, been, who have fallen asleep. Now look at, little, look at the little prepositional phrase there. In Jesus or through Jesus. You still notice that? So he says, that's your position. So he, he's telling us that if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the gospel, meaning he died for our sins, God accepted that death as a propitiation for our sins, a satisfactory payment, and he rose him from the dead to prove that he was satisfied. If you believe that gospel, Paul is saying here, then he's bringing those who have died ahead of you who are in Christ. Now, it's not soul sleep. It's just telling you, meaning sleep, meaning they died. They're with Christ. Notice they're with Christ. They're coming back with him. It's very clear in the text. They're not laying in a grave somewhere waiting for, for Jesus to come back and then they get life all of a sudden. That's a false teaching. Verse 15. Now, watch what he does here. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, already, already terminology is starting to change, that we, that's believers, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, notice he has changed now from asleep in Jesus who are coming with the Lord. They're coming, will remain coming with the Lord. He starts changing terminologies. He's using kurios now, this name above all names. Verse 16, for the Lord, here he goes again, himself will ascend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies will rise, will meet their souls and meet and the souls are coming with the Lord. The name above all names is coming and he's bringing their souls. He'll meet their bodies before he takes us. Look at verse 17. And then we who are alive, hey, this could happen today. We believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he your Lord? And then we who are alive will remain and, and remain, they are still here, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. He's not using the term Jesus anymore. He, he's using the term Lord. Because he wrote Philippians chapter 2. And he knows it's the name above all names. Here, Adoniah, or Jehovah, is coming in the air so that we shall Always be with the Lord. Therefore, if this isn't a great verse, be comforted by these things. Be comforted. The one who has a name above all names. Now, let me say something. I think there's sometimes confusion about what we call lordship salvation. I think this is lordship right here. He's been given a name, Lord, above all names. When I was a little boy and received the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, as a genuine conversion... I did not understand all this doctrine I've just taught you this morning. Here's what I knew. I was a sinner, and there's no way God was letting me in his home. Period. That's where I was. And I cried out. I cried out that God would forgive my sins through Jesus. And he did. Now, I have grown, like many of you, we've grown to realize he's our Lord, He's our Adonai, he's our Jehovah, he is our ruler and master and owner of all things. But at the point of salvation, often we don't fully grasp these things. Now here's the point. You should, if you're saved. You just don't run and say, hey, got Jesus in the back pocket, I'm good now. 
This is easy. I can have Jesus in this back pocket and Buddha in this one. Cover all the bases. No, that's not a saved person. Though at the time of salvation, you may not fully understand this great text. Some do. So, some have studied and denied Christ and all of a sudden he opens their mind and floods and all the stuff they've studied and reject it and they get it. But most often, we just need a savior. And then we realize he's not just a savior, he's savior God. And he's not just savior God, he's Lord. And he rules all things and I can trust him with my life, with my wife, with my children, with my, with my destiny, Right? With all that I'm hoping for, I can trust him in it. And that's what happens to us. And that's why we refer to him as our Lord. And, and some, some of us use lordship salvation in that way, trying to understand he owns us and holds us. And we worship him because of that. Now, because you look forward to the Lord's return now as a believer because you've grown in Christ, now you long to see your Jehovah, your Adoniah, your master. See, the older we get, don't you more look forward to the coming of Christ? There's some people gonna get married in here, and you're waiting to have children. You know, you're kind of thinking, yeah, I want Jesus to come back, but you know. Maybe after August or something, right? <laughs> you know, maybe after, you know, I go to college or something, right? I, we were there, weren't we, Ron? We were there, right? We understand this. God's gracious, isn't he, to us? But the more you grow, the more, the more you long to see his glory and all who he is, and you begin to understand that, you long for your Lord, because pretty soon you're sitting on a stool playing a guitar and you're not standing. <laughs> because we, we, we live in a sinful world. And we watch the news and we go, oh Lord, there are merciless people out there. And they hate the name of your son. And, and they're not just in the Middle East, they're here. They're here. Does anybody leave their keys in their car here? Keep your doors unlocked. Lay your weapons on the counter. <laughs> you don't do that. We live in a fallen world. Man, man hates God, and because he hates God, he rejects all that's good and all that's right. His heart is flooded with sin. Everything conceivable to evil lies in man's heart. And he invents new ways to be godless. And you and I have bent the knee to him. And you long for him. You long to see his glory. You long to see knees bow. And you long more than just seeing the world's knees bow. You long to bow yourself now. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's trying to get us to see here this morning. He's trying to get us to see the, the depth of this text. Paul says it this way. He says that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, Romans 
So according to these verses, there's a day of reckoning coming when all human pride will be broken, every mouth will be shut, except to knowledge that Jesus is Lord, he is God, and even by those who hate him will acknowledge him. The word confess here in our text is a word we get to acknowledge. And I confess in this text that there's two acknowledgements here. There is a willful acknowledgement that will come from the saved, from the redeemed. We will say, oh, I gladly confess you as Lord and I gladly, gladly bow my knee to you. But there are others. And they will bow their knee in submission full of hatred and bitterness towards, towards God himself. Understood and Jesus is Lord. See, these verses 9 through 11 are verses that are being unpacked from a prophecy of the Old Testament just as well. Do you know what the number one quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is? Either quoted or alluded to is. Do you know what it is? In Psalms 110 verse 1, it says this. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adoniah, just giving you the Hebrew, We've already talked about this, right? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Do you know that's the number one verse the writers of the New Testament use throughout the New Testament? There's a lot of Old Testament, 2,000 quotes from the Old Testament and the New Testament, 2,000 of them. But the number one quote is that verse. And I think it's exercised in this. Verse nine, God exalts the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord over all things. Verse nine is very clear. For this reason, I highly exalt him. Uh, Psalms 110 says, the Lord says, sit here at my right hand. That's the highest position you could ever have is sit in equality with God. So you can see the writer using this text. Verse 10, all intelligent beings will acknowledge his lordship. You see that in verse 10. So his name, every knee will bow. He says, till, you, till I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Verse 10 and 11. There will be a clear act and a verbalization of Christ's rule, Christ's lordship. We'll see it. Every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. Every tongue will confess. There's a clear, active, physical bowing before the Lord and a physical confession out of the mouths of all people. And he says here, till I make them at your feet. Thought, fourth thought here, this act glorifies the Father. End of verse 11 says, to the glory of God the Father. You can see that in this text. The Lord, Yahweh, says to Adonai, I'm going to do this. I'm going to exalt you over everybody. Where's footstools at? Up by your head? Yeah, you don't use them for a pillow, do you? They're at your feet. And it's, it's a phrase of, I'm going to, Yahweh is telling Adonai, I, I am going to put all things underneath you. Everything will be there. What a fascinating thing. Jesus as Lord is a strong comfort to believers. If you're struggling here today and lost in where 
where, what God has for you, what you're doing, um, lost in your, your understanding of salvation, lost in your, your jobs, lost in whatever you may be going through, Jesus as Lord is a strong comfort to you. It means he's there. It means he knows how to handle your problems. He can deal with these things. These verses are true right now and they will be true someday. There will be that glorious confession. So if they're not on your tongue yet, I would encourage you to put them on your tongue. Second thought, the knees that will bow to his sovereign lordship, the knees that will bow to his sovereign lordship. Verse 10 says that everyone who is in heaven and on earth and under the earth will will confess these things and bow. So, So who are these bowing knees making this great confection. Who are these that are doing this? There's three adjectives that are used in the original language here. And if you study these adjectives, you kind of can start figuring this out a little bit because who are these people? But we know, in some ways, you know this is you, right? But, But who are they? Who is, I asked this question, I wrote in my notes, who's typically in heaven? Who is typically on earth? And who is typically coming from below? So am I giving you a little hint here? Well, the first one is, is, I believe, they're angels. Every angel in heaven will confess that Jesus is Lord. I believe they do that even now. These are the, uh, what the Bible calls elect angels. Psalms 103, 20 and 21 says this, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his words, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his host, who serve him, doing his will. Revelation chapter 5, 11 and 12, and Revelation 7, 11 and 12, both mark very clearly in the end times as we gather before the throne of God, his angels are this incredible choir that we join, singing to the praises of God. Second group are those on the earth. Those on the earth. Well, I think that's humans. We're on earth, right? Right? God made this earth, he put earth right where it is, and he, put, and, he, and he designed earth to be in the perfect spot, not too far from the sun so we'd freeze to death, or too close that we would be too hot. And by the way, if the world is millions and millions of years old, and the, they show that the earth is inching towards, uh, very, very slightly towards the sun, if it's millions and millions of years old, we're going to have a better suntan than we have right now. Um, but God set that all in order, didn't he? right? And he, and he put humans on this earth. This is his master plan. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians. I want to go back to Thessalonians, but 2 Thessalonians this time. Verse 10. Same writer. Paul moved along by the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, he says this. When he... The context is Jesus, the Lord Jesus, verse 8. When, when Lord Jesus comes back, verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. I love that little phrase. He's going to be glorified in his saints on that day to be marveled at by those who believe. 
See, there's going to be a group that are going to marvel at him. They're going to go, oh, my Lord has returned. There's another group, and you find them in verses 8 and 9. 8 says, dealing out retribution. This is Jesus. To those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the, power, from the glory of his power. Whoa. See the two different groups? Verse 10, here's marveling. Verse 8 and 9, these are people who reject the gospel. And the verses get worse, and I don't have time to go into it, but boy, there's gnashing of teeth, there's fire that doesn't quench, there's a black of blackness. Hell is described very clearly, probably more clearly than heaven is described, because I don't think we can get our earthly minds around heaven, but he gives us a view of the depths of hell. Now, back to Revelations 5, and I'm out of time, but 5, 11, and 12, and, and 7, 11, and 12, again, it's the people of earth that are joining with the angels, and they're singing, worthy is the lamb. That's, that's who these people are. That's the ones on earth. So there's ones in heaven, there's ones on earth, and then there's ones under the earth. Who are they? How about Demons. These are those who followed Satan. The Bible says a third of the stars fell with Satan and followed him as he had such a foolish request and foolish desire to be like God. He took a third of the stars with him, the scriptures tell us. This is a demonic world that God is talking about. Demons still run this earth. They run this world. They are the servants of Satan. They bid his work. And God says their tongues and their knees will bow. When you think about these demons, they are very fascinating creatures. They are created beings. But they absolutely know Jesus is Lord. Listen to just a few of their responses to Jesus while he was on earth, dressed in his humanity. They say this, Luke 4, 34, let us alone, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Present tense. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. They do a better job than the religions of the world of calling who Jesus is. Luke chapter 8, the man in the tombs, verse 28 here this demonic man comes and the demons begin to speak out and seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said with a loud voice, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, equal to the father. I beg you, do not tort tort torture me yet. There's an there's a understanding within the text that they're saying, it's not our time yet. And notice every one of these. Luke 8, 31 goes a little farther. The demons then implored him not to command them to go to the abyss yet. Every one of those demons do what when they first see Jesus? Fall before him, confess him as Lord. Demons seem to get it. James 2 tells us that. He is the ruler of all. And all knees will fall. Now let me... Just finish with this. 
these demons are headed for the same pit. Matthew 25, 41 says this, then he will say to those who are on his left, depart from me, accursed ones. These are the ones that do not confess Jesus as Lord out of salvation and belief in him. They're forced to do this. Enter into the fire, now listen to this, enter into the fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These are fearful things. And so every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and all, all the earth will be judged as they fall before the Lord. We read that in our scripture read in Acts 10, 42. Paul said, look, no, Peter said, look, we were ordered to preach that this is the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Paul's last words to Timothy, the last chapter that he writes to Timothy, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead. He is the judge. And I, and I would implore with you, I would implore with you, you were either going to fall before him as your savior or judge. And go just a little bit farther. Those you love and those you know in this world, those co-workers that you have, they are going to do the exact same thing. They're either going to fall before him as a savior or they're going to fall before him as a judge. And he will look at them and separate them and say, I do not know you. I have a place prepared for you too. And that bothers us, doesn't it? And yet God will be in perfect control, judging in perfection our God and our Lord and our savior. Last thought, and you could preach a whole sermon on this, is the greatness of the glory of God the Father. Notice in the end of verse 11, he says, all this will be done to the glory of God the Father. All this will be done to the glory of the Father. To proclaim the sovereign glory of lordship of the Son of God is the greatest glory you can give to the Father. When you say Jesus is Lord, you magnify the Father. When you magnify the Father, you magnify the Son. This is what Jesus said in John 17, 1. G Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. They just glorify each other because they're one. They just reflect off of each other. And when you say, I confess you now, Lord, I'm not waiting to the end. I'm not waiting until this all comes down to the judge that's on the earth. I am now confessing you as my Lord, my ruler, owner, sustainer of life. I confess you now, you glorify the Father. That was his whole design. And I love that text. So let me close with just three thoughts of application because we talked about humility and how this all fits into this. I want you to go away going, how, do I, how does this work tomorrow morning? Well, number one, this doctrine is meant to humble you. That's the whole context in Philippians 2, right? Have this attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Be humbled. You are not Lord of your life. Praise God. Lord, I bow the knee to you today. I bow the knee to you in my salvation. You, you are my Lord. I, I give you that. But today, today, I bow the knee. I give my life to you. I think you should do that. I think we should think that way when we think about this doctrine that Jesus, fully God, becomes man so he can die on a cross for us and God can exalt him. I think it's very humbling. Two, it's just flat, pure worship when you think about this. It's just pure worship. To think that Jesus, 
fully God, steps out of heaven to die for me? T to leave the perfection of heaven? It just bends your knee in your heart. I, I think this is why we sing in this church. I think this, is, this doctrine drives our expressive worship from our mouths. It's just pure worship. If you're having a bad day, you should read verses five through 11 sometime. If you're struggling, just read verses five through 11. Remind yourself that the God of creation came down, added humanity to his, to his nature, to his full deity, and, and then suffered a death, a death on a cross, a, a death of propitiation for us, and then God exalted him. Just focus on those verses if you're having a bad day. I guarantee you, your attitude will change. And then lastly, defend and tell. Defend and tell. Because we are in awe of him, we must tell others. And, and, I, and let me just close with this thought. We defend, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, with gentleness and reverence. Defend with gentleness and reverence. Apologia, that's a word we get out of that. Defend with gentleness and reverence. You can tell people, you know, I know where you're at. I used to not see Jesus as my Lord. I saw him as a good person, good example to the world. But there was a day where he became my Lord and my Savior. I didn't understand it all at first, but over time I began to realize that he owns all things. He owns my soul. And can I just tell you a little bit how he has changed my life and how my sins are gone and how I'm free from this. And he can do it for you. See, I, I just don't think this is a message you and I can hold in. I think we have to tell people. Father, we become overwhelmed at this text because the death of it teaches us of whose presence we're in constantly. The Bible says, Jesus, that you never leave us nor forsake us. So we are not just in the presence of the Son of Man. We're in the presence of the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Beloved One, the Alpha and Omega, the Door, the Way, the Truth. We're in the presence of the Lord. We are in the presence of God. So Lord, I pray this morning that you and I uh, that sit here, Lord, that we would not not just see this as another sermon, Lord, another passage of scriptures, but yet we would come away and say, he is my Lord. I, I have confessed him as that. He owns me. He bought me. He purchased me. And I belong to him. And Lord, I trust that many of us in this room can say, we long to publicly confess your name and bend our knees. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.